Good morning, everybody, and happy Resurrection Day to you. Um, I love that early account because um, that is exactly the way it happened, and I want to explain to you why I believe that's exactly the way that it happened. If you'll notice from that story in Luke 24, the, the gospel account, and by the way, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them tell the resurrection story on the first day of the week on Sunday morning, and all of them tell that it was the women, parentheses, not the men, uh, who, were, who went to the tomb. And I, I do want to point that out. One of the early Easter jokes I heard was... Uh, the guys were, were sitting around talking and they were thinking about maybe having a sunrise Easter service and they said, yeah, but let's do it. Let's do this Easter service at sunrise. Let's do it very historically. Let's just have the women go and do the service and then they can come back and tell us how it was. So, <laughs> so it is one of the first things I noticed uh, as in the Easter story on that first Sunday morning that it was the women who were on their way to the tomb. And it's early on Sunday morning. In fact, John's gospel says while it was still dark, they were on their way to the tomb. And the women were not coming empty-handed. They had seen the place where Jesus was buried. They'd seen the tomb where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had taken Jesus and placed him in a tomb and laid him there and then rolled the stone away. In Mark's gospel, it's interesting that uh, the women ask each other, who is going to roll the stone away for us? So they didn't even know how they'd get into the tomb at first. But they were not coming empty-handed. They were coming with their hands full of burial spices. Now, it's very interesting carrying burial spices, expecting to anoint the body of someone who has died. Does that not imply to you that they were not expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead? They were not expecting the tomb to be empty at all. I mean, you're, you're bringing burial spices with you. You're not expecting the resurrection to happen. So that's the first observation. The second observation I've already shared with you, and that is that it is the women who were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Now, why is that important? It's not so important if you're in 21st century America, but it's very important if you're in 1st century Palestine because women had very little status in that 1st century culture. In fact, women had such low status and such low credibility that they were not even allowed to testify in a court of law. So one of the things you can say, well, did Jesus change anything? Because the title of today's message is Easter changes everything. One of the things that Jesus changed was the status of women. And the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus are women. I think the gospel writers were taking a huge risk when they wrote this, when they said, oh, by the way, the first day of the week, the women were on the way to the tomb and they get to the tomb and it's empty and the angels are there and the angels said to them, why are you looking for the dead among the living? He's not here. Jesus isn't still dead in the tomb. He's risen. Just like he said, by the way, the gospel writers are taking a huge risk. They're saying that the first people to see Jesus risen from the dead were women. Why would the authors do that? Didn't they realize that they were risking their credibility, that the readers in the first century would read these gospel accounts and say, women, first witnesses, the rest, oh, I don't know about the women, the credibility, I don't know if we're going to take this seriously. I think they wrote it that way because that's the way it happened. And in a good Jewish culture, you remember the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what one of the commandments is? 
you shall not bear false witnesses or you shall not lie. And so it would have been a lie to say that the men were, were there, the first ones to witness the, the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. Here's another reason why I believe this gospel story is historically accurate and not just something made up, not just wish fulfillment, not something that the disciples decided to concoct this story because they had a good thing going with Jesus and the enterprise and they didn't want to see it come to an end just because their leader died. So that, and, and by the way, that's one of the theories of people who do not believe in the actual miracle of the resurrected Jesus is that the disciples stole his body away and they made up the story of the resurrection. One of the reasons that I would say it, that's counter to that theory is that the gospel writers say that it was the women who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead first. And by the way, do you remember at the end of that passage, it says the women came back to the disciples who were hiding, by the way, in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, not exactly expecting a resurrected Jesus, right? So they weren't expected Jesus to be alive from the dead. And the women came to them and said, we have seen, or, or the tomb is empty. Uh, the angel said that he's been raised from the dead. We're not sure what happened. And it says the disciples, the 12 or the 11, because Judas had already gone out and hanged himself, the 11 uh, took the story of the women and they basically didn't believe him. They didn't believe their story. They believed that what they said was nonsense. Not the first time that a man didn't believe a woman, even though the woman was right. But that's the way it happened because the large stone had been rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let his followers come in and to see that the tomb was empty. So they weren't expected Jesus to breaking out of his tomb alive, but Jesus did because he is who he says he is. He says, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead a few weeks earlier, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrected, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever uh, lives and believes in me will never die. And those of us who are followers of Christ, that's one of uh, the anchors of our faith, that we who believe in him, we, we will never die. Our physical body may die, but our soul is going to be going on to live with God forever in heaven. So friends, when Jesus died, so did the penalty of our sins and the rebellion against God, as Troy said so eloquently in the communion meditation. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, so did raise our hope, our hope for life beyond the grave. And you know what else should be raised? So should our joy. And the reason is, one reason why I think our joy is maybe not as high or as exuberant as I believe it should be this morning, is because sometimes we just hear the story again and again and again and we take it for granted. It's like Shakespeare says, familiarity breeds contempt. And we hear the story again and again, we're used to the story and we don't realize how astonishing it is that death that seems to be the end of everything, that death that is the, the great fear of man, no matter how well a life I live, no matter how great accomplishments I make, like the writer of Ecclesiastes said, at the end, it's just all meaningless. Why? Because no matter whether you're a king or a pauper, whether you did great things in your life or you were a jerk, <laughs> it doesn't matter because at the end, the grave takes everybody and that's the end of it. And it doesn't matter. And Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he said, our life does matter. Our life, our life matters here on this life and it leads into all eternity. Whatever we say or do matters in this life and because our life is not going to end. I wanna give you some reasons. I wanna to talk to you about two things this morning. I wanna give you some reasons 
why I believe Jesus actually historically was raised from the dead. And then the second, I want to talk to you about what does that mean and how does Easter change everything for us? Because that's why I titled it, Easter Changes Everything. If, if in our Christian faith, we need to know the reasons why we believe what we believe. We need to know the why behind the what. We need to know that it's not just the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's like, why is that true? Why is that a historical fact and not just a wish fulfillment of those who follow him? It's not just a fairy tale for Jesus' followers. There's a professor at a Christian university. His name is Dr. Gary Habermas. He interviewed 1,400 historians besides himself because he also is a historian. And they came, he came up with 10 historical observations about the story of the resurrection of Jesus that he says even the people who do not believe in the miracle of the resurrection, these historians believe that these observations are accurate. So I want to go through them real quick. And some of them are obvious and some of them are less obvious. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. The reason we have to say that is there are still some people. There's one guy who came up with a concocted story uh, years ago called the swoon theory. And it's the idea that, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He sort of fainted on the cross and everybody thought he had died. So they brought him down and he was unconscious and they, they laid him in the tomb and in the cool of the tomb, he revived and he woke up and somehow he walked out of the tomb. I don't know how he rolled the 2,000 pound stone away. I don't know how he got out of all those burial clothes that he was firmly and tightly wrapped in. Uh, I don't know how he breathed when he had the linen mask all around him uh, with the burial spices, but they say that's what happened. So we have to say this, Jesus died by crucifixion. He was scourged before he died. He was beaten. Uh, and to the point where Isaiah's uh, prophecy in, in Isaiah chapter 50 said his, his face was marred beyond recognition. He was uh, put to death on a cross and to make sure that he was dead. You, re you recall that Jesus had already died and uh, the Jewish leader said to Pilate, we need to make sure he's dead uh, before sundown. So uh, could you make sure that everybody who's dying on a cross up here, all three of these criminals, can you make sure that, that they're dead? And so they broke the legs of the other guys to help speed up their death. They went to Jesus. They'd seen that he'd already died. And what did that Roman officer do? You remember he had a spear and he stuck the spear in Jesus' side. And it said not only did blood flow out, it said blood and water poured out. Uh, indicating that death had already occurred, that the heart had already stopped beating. So Jesus really did die by crucifixion. Second, that he was buried. As I said before, he was buried in a tomb not very far from the site of the crucifixion. Uh, Lily uh, was in the prayer meeting. Lily Pock was in a prayer meeting with me this morning, and she said she stayed up last night till 12.30 a.m. so she could turn on TBN and see live coverage in Israel of the site of the empty tomb where they were visiting, because they were reliving that. And what that reminded me of, too, was, was, you know what? Even today, 20 centuries later, you can go to a place in Israel, to on a hill where there were ancient tombs, where people were buried. Lots of Jews were buried in the first century. And you can see the, the tomb that is believed, at least the tomb that is believed to be the actual tomb where Jesus was buried. 
and he came out of the grave alive on the third day. So Jesus was cru- died by crucifixion. He was buried. His death caused the disciples to despair and to lose hope. We read that. It is a complete surprise to them that Jesus came back from the grave. And then number four, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. You realize that when the followers of Jesus, when they started preaching the resurrection, do you remember what city that it was in? In Acts chapter 2, they were in the city of Jerusalem uh, 50 days after the death of Jesus. And in the city of Jerusalem, that's where they started preaching about the resurrected Jesus and that there could be eternal life and forgiveness and, and, and uh, new life through faith in him. They did that in the city of Jerusalem in the very place where the death and burial in Jesus happened. And so the tomb was empty. In fact, the Jewish authorities who denied the resurrection of Jesus, they did not even deny that the tomb was empty. They tried to come up with another reason for the empty tomb, but everybody agreed, hey, the tomb is empty. You want to go see it? It's right over here. It's not far outside the gates of Jerusalem. So it is an historical event. His, his, the tomb was empty. Let's go on to the next one. Number five, the disciples had experiences. Whatever the experience of the disciples, they believed that they were literal appearances of the risen Jesus, according to their testimony. That's why John says in his gospel, he says, and, and in his letter, he said, that's that what we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, what our hands have touched, This is the eternal life that has appeared unto us and we proclaim him to you so that you also may have eternal life. They had an experience and they were sharing the experience of their transformation. They believed was the risen Jesus. They believed that they saw him. In fact, uh, when Thomas, uh, who was the doubter in, in John chapter 20, Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them the first time. And you'd think he would believe when all 10 of the other apostles said, we saw Jesus and he's alive. You can't believe it. This is awesome. This changes everything. And Thomas says, unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I put my hands in the scars of his crucified hands, unless I put my hand in the scar of his side where they pierced it, if I don't have, if I don't have that experience, I'm not going to believe. And it was a week later when Jesus appeared again and To the disciples, he said, peace be unto you. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, look, check it out. Check out my hands. Check out my side. Stop unbelieving. Stop your unbelief and begin to believe. And Thomas dropped down on his knees before Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And that's what changed his life. Thomas became a great missionary. Thomas became a martyr. He died a horrible suffering death preaching that Jesus was alive, that he came back from the dead, and he's victorious, and he's ruling in heaven. That's Thomas's testimony. The disciples were transformed. They were transformed from doubters to bold proclaimers. The, the disciples first heard the women's testimony, and they said, ah, oh, it sounded to them like nonsense. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. What? You know, who, who would believe such a, such a crazy story like that? But then Jesus appeared to them. Then the two men were on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them. And those two guys came running back to Jerusalem to the other disciples, and they said, we've seen the Lord. And he said, yeah, we've seen him too. He even appeared to Simon. So they were transformed into bold proclaimers. Number seven, they preached the message of Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. I, have, I alluded to that earlier. 
It's very important. The very, it, it, it's not like years later and they go to a different country and, they, and on a new continent where nobody could verify any of the facts of the story, they start preaching about Jesus dying on a cross for our sins and being buried and being raised from the dead on the third day. They preach that same gospel message in the city where it happened, where the people could either deny what happened, they could refute their story, they could say, look, hey, I was here too, and it didn't happen the way you were talking about. Nobody was denying the story of the apostles. They tried to keep them from preaching about Jesus, but they didn't deny the truth of the story. They preached about Jesus' resurrection beginning in the very city where all these events took place. Number eight, Orthodox Jews. This is another interesting thing. Orthodox Jews had one holy day of the week. Remember, it's in the, it's in the uh, Ten Commandments. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. That rest is called a Sabbath. The, the sabado, what we get in Spanish, which is translated into Saturday. Saturday was the, was the holy day of rest for the Jewish people for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, and it is to this day. But the Orthodox Jews who became followers of Jesus, somehow they changed that day into Sunday rather than Saturday. Now, why did they change it into Sunday? Because it was on the first day of the week, Sunday, that Jesus rose from the dead. And they said, that is such a huge game changer. That is such a remarkable event once in a, in a lifetime that changes everything that we are even going to change our day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. So that's huge. Number nine, Here's another historical observation. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, right? James, uh, also in the family of Mary and Joseph. James, who was a skeptic in John's Gospel, chapter 7, it says that his own family, Jesus' own family at that time, didn't even believe in him, that he was the Messiah. That James went from a skeptic before the resurrection he became a believer after seeing Jesus raised from the dead. Because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus also appeared to James. Paul is writing that and he said he appeared to James. James became a leader in the Jerusalem church. You can read all about it in the book of Acts. And then number 10, finally, Paul. Now, Paul wasn't always known as Paul. Paul was first known as Saul. And to the early Christ followers, he was Saul the Terrible. Because Saul was a persecutor. He, he hated the Christians. He hated the Christian faith. He thought it was a total hoax that this Jesus was being proclaimed as Messiah and risen from the dead. The apostle Paul, before he was Paul and he was Saul, he tried to stamp out the Christian faith before it ever totally got off the ground. And he became an eminent failure at stamping out the Christian faith. Why? Because Paul's testimony is on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him and appointed Paul to be a herald and a, and a proclaimer of his good news faith to the non-Jewish people in the Roman world. And so Paul converted to the Christian faith. And that's a historical fact that no one can deny. Now you may say, okay, what do all these facts mean together? All I'm trying to say to you is all these historical facts lead us to believe that the resurrection wasn't just wish fulfillment. It wasn't just a dream. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a, this would be a nice ending of the story if it really happened this way. No, this was the story as it really happened. And if it really happened that way, if Jesus really did raise from the dead, then all these things would have happened and they did. 
And they did. So that buttresses our faith. Jesus really came out of that tomb alive on the third day. That's why Peter in the book of Acts, when the Jews are trying to shut him down, they're trying to close his mouth, they're, they're threatening him with jail and even putting him to death if he keeps talking about Jesus. And Peter says to them, well, you judge for yourselves between, you know, whether it's more important for us to follow God or to follow you, because we cannot stop speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. That's Peter's testimony. Peter, who denied Jesus, who said, I don't even know the guy, calls down curses on himself and says, I don't know him. And then Jesus looks over to him and Peter realizes he's denied his Lord. He's denied the Messiah. Peter was down and dejected and he was hiding from the Jews. But when Jesus appeared to him, everything changed for Peter. His life was transformed. He became the leader of the early church in the book of Acts because Jesus came out of that tomb alive, even for a guy like Peter. Peter did a 180. Paul did a complete 180, became a champion for the Christian faith. And that also explains how the Christian faith in just three centuries, beginning from a, the capital of Israel in Jerusalem, the Christian faith had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And in the fourth century, Christianity was actually declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity is a force on every continent, on every major region in this world. The only place in the world where Christianity is not the dominant religion is mostly in North Africa and in the Middle East, and that's where the heart of Islam is. And even there, the Christian faith is growing. It just happens to be growing under the radar because God allowed this invention to happen, and he's using it. And the Bible, like the Bible says, God causes all things to work together for good. And for all the evil that happens on the internet, one of the ways that the internet is useful is that God can use the internet to proclaim his good news message to people who are in closed countries who could never hear the good news message of Christ proclaimed in a public place in their own city and country where they live. But they can hear it in the privacy of their own home through this little thing called the internet. It's pretty amazing. Even there in the Middle East, Christian faith is growing under that radar and under the Islamic leaders. Do you realize that the Christian faith is, tri is triumphing in the world today? 2.7 million people a year are converting to faith in Christ. That's 7,400 people per day. And it's going to be even more than that on a day like today. At least 70 million people are now practicing Christians in China. Now, that's significant because there's a lot of people who say they're Christ followers here in America, and sometimes you're like, well, I see what you say, but I see the life you lead, you lead and eh, there might be a little question about your, whether you're really a practicing Christian. There are 70 million practicing Christians in China today, whereas in 1949, there were only a couple million. So there's some remarkable growth in places around the world. Only a, a century or so ago, near the turn of uh, the around 1900 or 1910, 80% of the Christ followers lived in Europe or the United States. And now today, 100 years later, 60% of the Christ followers live outside of Europe and the United States. Most, almost two-thirds of the Christ followers in the world today are outside of our country and outside Europe. It's, a, it's amazing how it's grown. In fact, there's, there are more Christians now in Ghana than there are in Scotland. South Korea has now sent over 12,000 missionaries 
into the world. South Korea, that two generations ago had hardly any Christians in the country. South Korea has got on fire with the good news message of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, we were in Chile, Lisa and I, uh, being missionaries there, and we met a couple from South Korea. And they spoke Korean and Spanish. And Lisa and I spoke Korean and Spanish. And so we could not speak Korean to them. They could not speak English to us. So the only way that two missionaries from different countries could speak to each other was in their own second languages. We spoke to each other in Spanish. They were like, ah, Jesus Cristo ama a nosotros. You know, they, how do you picture a Korean speaking Spanish? And we were just like, this is amazing. You know? but, but here they were sharing the good news of Christ in Chile and South America. Why? Because Easter changes everything. The Christian faith has changed the world as we know it. What has changed in the Western world because of the Christian faith? Well, a couple things. The Christians were the ones who built the first hospitals that were eventually open to everyone, not just for the rich who could pay. Uh, Christians started the first orphanages for abandoned children. Christians were the first ones who uh, started to fight against this practice of infanticide. And again, talking about elevating women in the ancient world, there was much infanticide, especially in the Roman world when daughters were born. It the, I mean, that whole thumb up and thumb down in the gladiator, you know, in the arena. When the father would, would give his thumb up when his child was born, that means the child lives. If his father gave a thumb down, that means his, his, the child was left outside alone to die. Infanticide was very common in that ancient world, and Christians brought an end to that. Christians fought for and continue to fight for the equality of all human beings, that under God, you know, we are all equal in our Creator's sight, that all races, men, women, gender, uh, uh, classes of people, that, that, that we all have equal worth in God's sight. You know, that Christian song we used to sing is true, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. That came from the Christian faith. Christians led the fight to end slavery. Slavery, it was William Wilberforce, who was an evangelical Christian and a leading member of the British Parliament who for fought for 25 or 30 years to end slavery in the British Empire. And it finally happened, and that led to the abolition of slavery in the United States of America. And we're still fighting to end slavery in the rest of the world. Christians are fighting for the equality of human beings as I said, for all genders, races, and classes of people. By the way, the Christian faith uh, brought in uh, championing the idea of monogamous, exclusive marriage between one man and one woman. No mistresses on the side. No, none of this idea that you marry because of economics or you marry because of families coming together and property rights and stuff like that. No, people uh, got married and stay married and stay faithful to each other practicing the Christian faith. That brought tremendous security to families, to, to wives. It brought some tremendous security to children who are now born legitimately in wedlock and not, quote, bastard children born out of wedlock. So uh, there were many beneficiaries in the world as a result of the practicing of the Christian faith. The other reason that I think the Christian faith is so great is that our faith provides us with what I call transcendent purpose. Transcendent purpose. It means that there's something bigger than us to live for. Uh, there's something bigger than the self. 
Most religions that are in the world, everyone is trying to save themselves. You know, you get that, it's like the Titanic's going down and everybody's clamoring for the lifeboat. And you realize it was the Christian evangelist, the Scottish guy, that actually said, women, children, and unsaved in the lifeboats first. It's very interesting that he would say, and the unsaved in the lifeboats first, because they didn't have a saving relationship with Christ. He wanted to make sure they were saved physically so they could have a time to hear the good news about Jesus and respond before it was too late for them. So it's interesting. Christianity changes everything. It provides us with a transcendent purpose. The easiest way that I can say it is Jesus died for us so that we can now live for him. This was one of our key verses from last week's message. It says, and Jesus died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised for them, was raised again. So in other words, Now that I live, the life that I live in the body, I'm supposed to live to the glory of God. I'm not supposed to live just for myself. I'm supposed to live to love God with all my heart, as are you, and you're all supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, which means that you and I are to make this world a better place. Where there's injustice, let's bring justice. Where there's hunger, let's bring food. Where there's no clean water, let's bring clean water. Where there is no hope, let's bring the hope of the gospel message. That's the idea that that you and I now have transcendent purpose. We can have a hopeful outlook about the future because we know by faith, because Jesus actually did come out of the tomb alive, we know that there's a better world coming. And we can, God is going to use us now to take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. God will use us to make a better world in the here and now. C.S. Lewis kind of put it that way, too. He says, you know, it's interesting that the Christians who are always talking about in the sweet by and by, you know, in heaven, when we all get to heaven, what a great and rejoicing that will be. You know, that that song that we sing, and you say, oh, you, you know, people say, you Christians are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The truth, but the truth is, according to C.S. Lewis, that the Christians who are so hopeful of the afterlife, we're the ones that are making the best difference in the world today. So I have great hope in the Christian faith that it is ultimately going to be triumphant. And it is going to be triumphant because Easter, talking about that first weekend of the death and the burial and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Easter changes everything. The Christian faith has changed the world because the Christian faith has the power to transform human hearts. Selfish self-centered, me-first human hearts can now say, I will, I will submit my will to the will of God. I will follow him. He will be the leader. I will be his follower. I will get out of the driver's seat. I will let God be in the driver's seat. I'm not going to say God is my co-pilot. I'm only going to say God is my pilot. Do you get what I'm saying? We don't We're not the boss of me so much anymore. We are now servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we let him govern our lives. He transforms our hearts so that we can become others-centered rather than self-centered. That changes everything. Because because selfish, self-centered people uh, who become givers, they're the people that change the world. How can I join his kingdom enterprise? How can I be a part of that, you know? Um, 
Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10 when he's sending out his followers two by two. In fact, Jesus taught this to his followers before he was even raised from the dead. He sent out his followers two by two in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, and he says, you know what? Freely you have received. You know what the rest of the verse says? Freely give. We are free to give because we have received from Jesus freely. That's what changes. That's what transforms our hearts. That's what allows us to be selfless not selfish, and that's what allows the world to change. So the difference of the Christian faith from any other philosophy in the world is the Christian faith has the power to transform human hearts, one individual at a time. Most of all, uh, Easter changes everything because Easter changes people. It changed Jesus' followers. It sure changed my life. I started following Jesus when I was 17 years old. I was pretty self-centered. You know, it was all about me and mine and what I could get or what my goals were. And I, and I come to realize there's got to be more to life than just living this life on earth and dying a, a death and that's the end of it. What is, what is the real meaning of life? And I started this search and I found that uh, living in a, in a saving relationship with Jesus by faith, it just gave me meaning to life it gave me a transcendent purpose it gave me a reason to live like what it what should I do with my life how should I invest my life and Jesus says follow me be involved in my kingdom work make this world a better place get people ready not only to be better in this life but get people ready for eternal life in union with Christ forever in heaven and you know what I can testify, I could say following Jesus over the years, over the last almost 40 years for me, it just gets better and better. I realize the depth of his love. I can't even fathom. I'm 40 years into the Christian faith and I still haven't plumbed the depths of Christ's love for me. It changes me. It transforms me. It makes me want to live for him. That's the power of the Christian life. That's why Easter changes everything. It changes human lives. It changes individuals. The real question for you today, if you're here sitting here and you're wondering and you're maybe you're considering the Christian faith, should I really embrace it? Should I follow it? Should I believe it? Should I, should I take a step forward in response to Jesus? Is Does Jesus have the power to change your life? Does Jesus have the power to make a difference in your life? I say, yes, he does. The reason he does is because there's so many people in this room who are already Christ followers that can turn to you if you ask them and say, has Jesus changed your life? Is your life any better from following Jesus than it was when you did not have a relationship with him? And I can almost tell you, most 90 plus percent would give a testimony and say, my life is so much better now following Jesus than it ever was before. It begins by faith. So here's the question. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you put your faith in our resurrected victorious Savior? Have you committed your life to follow him? Because that's where it all begins. That's where the step of faith is. What about your heart? You know, there's three basic steps to following Jesus. It says in John's gospel, in John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, but as many as received him. Yeah, that idea of receiving him. So we're going to talk about what that means. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. It is an act of faith. It's an act of your will. It's a decision that you and I have to make at some point in our lives where you say, I will follow Jesus. 
It begins by believing. It's, in fact, there's basically three steps. Believe, receive, and become. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that he is who he claimed to be. That he didn't stay in the tomb dead on the third day. He came out alive. He's victorious. He's reigning in heaven with God the Father. And according to his promise, someday he's coming back again to, to bring heaven back to earth. That in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. So you have to believe and it has to be sincere. You start with believe. The second is receive. It's very similar to if you knew that uh, you had a terrible disease and the disease was going to take your life. And if you heard on the television, you know, they came out with some great news story. Wow, they've come up with a cure for the very disease that you have. And they've developed this cure. You can take it by, by having this prescription of these pills. And if, the, if you go to the pharmacy and get this prescription filled and start taking these pills, the, the, the mortal disease that you have will be healed. If you saw that on the television and you said, wow, that's an amazing development. And if I even believe the story is true. But if you never went down to the pharmacy and got the pills and took the pills and, 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 and ingested them into your life, that's what we're talking about when we say receive. You can't just say, I believe the message is true of the Christian faith. You have to say, I embrace it. I receive it. Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life and I'm giving my life to you in humble faith. So you believe and you receive and it says to them he gave the right to become children of God. Everybody's a creation of God just because you're a human being made in the image of God. But not everybody's a child of God. Only those who take that step of faith and trust in Jesus, they're the ones that become children of God. Is that something you want to do today? We're going to give an opportunity for that. Let's take a moment and let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And if that's, if that's the desire of your heart to follow him today, to live for him who died and willingly gave his life for you, if that's what you want to do today, then I ask you to pray along a prayer with me. Something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And Lord, I recognize that you gave your life when you died on the cross. You died for all the sins, for an atoning sacrifice to take away all the sins, including mine. Lord, I, I want that forgiveness. I want to know that I'm a child of God by faith. Lord, so Lord, I'm giving my life to you. I'm submitting myself to you. I say, Lord, you be the leader of my life, and I'm going to be your follower. Lord, show me how to take whatever the next steps are to grow in my faith. God, I'm so happy to be here today. I'm so happy to know that I'm forgiven and that I have eternal life. And Lord, I, I want to continue to grow. I want to learn what this Christian life is all about. So Lord, show me. Show me each day. Reveal it to me through your Holy Spirit. And I rejoice in my salvation by faith by putting my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I hope you took that step of faith today, whether you're watching via live stream online or whether you're here in the room today, because we want to rejoice with you today. That's a huge step. That is the major step 
that you have taken in your life, the best decision you will ever make, and I applaud you for taking it. It's the beginning of a great journey, and I don't know what next step is going to look like for you. I, for some of you, the next step uh, might be to be baptized into Christ as a public declaration of your faith. Maybe that next step for you is to join a church, a good life-giving church. Maybe the next step for you is to uh, join a life group. Maybe the next step for you is to, is to start attending our follow class, which is for new believers, for people who want to know what the Christian life is all about. That follow class is going to be in two weeks on April 15th. Maybe it's to go out into the lobby and to put your name on the sign-up sheet and say, I'm going to attend that class. Whatever that next step is for you, we want to help you take that. We want to help you grow in your faith.